0: This program is made possible by members and donors, so a huge thanks to everyone who contributes on Patreon to support the show. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast in which we shall learn about the history, legality, conditions, and consequences of U.S. concentration camps erected to house asylum seekers fleeing from unspeakable violence, only to land in the hands of Trump's intentionally torturous immigration detention system. Clips today come from The Real News, Democracy Now!, The Bradcast, Boom Lawyered, Light Treason News, Why Is This Happening?, Sojourner Truth Radio, and Counterspin. The
1: United States is running concentration camps on our southern border, and That is exactly what they are. They are concentration
2: camps. That was Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She was condemned for this video with Fox News, for example, saying that she should apologize to every Jew for comparing immigration detention centers in the U.S. with concentration camps. Here's more of what she had to say.
1: If that doesn't bother you, I don't I I like, we can have, okay, whatever. I want to talk to the people that are concerned enough with humanity to say that we should not, that never again means something. And that um, the fact that concentration camps are now an institutionalized practice in the
3: home of the free is
4: extraordinarily disturbing.
2: Many organizations and individuals also rose to defend what she said, arguing that without making comparisons, one cannot learn from history and one is doomed to repeat it. The Jewish Voice for Peace, a U.S.-based progressive Jewish organization with tens of thousands of members, published a short statement reminding people that Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez was sharing an article from the men's magazine Esquire, which quoted journalist and concentration camp expert Andrea Pitzer, who said, quote, There have been concentration camps in France, South Africa, Cuba, the Soviet Union, and, with Japanese internment, the United States. In fact, we are operating such a system right now in response to a very real spike in arrivals at our southern border. Various right-wing and pro-Trump organizations found it easier to lash out at Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez than at Esquire magazine. But this entire debate has drawn attention away from the actual story, the conditions under which refugees who arrive at the U.S. border are kept. So, to discuss this, we are joined by Aviva Chomsky. She's a professor of history and coordinator of Latin American Studies at Salem State University and author of many books, the latest of which is Undocumented, How Immigration Became Illegal. Thanks for joining us again, Aviva. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. So let's start with the obvious question. Do you agree with the condi- that the conditions uh, in which families are kept at near the southern border could and should be called concentration camps?
5: Okay, so I can answer that question really, um, I can give an answer on both sides of of the question. On one hand, um, using that kind of terminology in the United States today is inflammatory because we have been taught falsely that concentration camp is a word that applies solely to the Nazi regime and to the death camps that were part of the system of the Holocaust, of the attempted extermination of the Jewish and other uh, unwanted populations of Germany and the territories conquered by Germany during World War II. Um, But on the other hand, we can also say that this is a very uh, strategic and Propagandistic use of the term concentration camps because the term concentration camps uh, has broader meaning than that. That is, the Nazi death camps are one historical example of concentration camps, but concentration camps have existed in many different places. Basically, what a concentration camp is is a place where a governing power concentrates a a civilian population um, that has not been accused of or committed any crime, but uh, rather imprisoning people, concentrating people, um, not because they have been imprisoned for, and, and judged and charged uh, for committing a crime, but rather simply because of who they are, removing them from their where they want to be and forcing them to live in some kind of a prison camp where the reason that they been, have been imprisoned is because of who they are. Now this has happened over and over again in world history and in U.S. history. Um, the Nazi death camps being only one histor- historical example of the, some of the examples we might even learn about if we're studying U.S. history in a mainstream uh, high school classroom. Um, for example, during the Spanish-American War, when the or the Cuban War for Independence, when the Spanish were trying to. Reconcentrate the Cuban population, take the Cuban population out of the areas where they lived and imprison them in these huge concentration camps, prison camps. And some of the U.S. propaganda trying to justify the U.S. entry into the Spanish, into the Cuban War of Independence, which we then came to call the Spanish American War, um, was because of the Spanish policy of removing civilian populations and concentrating them in prison camps. Um, So the United States in that case denounced the policy. We did the same thing in the United States with the Japanese American population during World War II. And at that time, U.S. government officials, uh, the Supreme Court, openly called the Japanese internment camps concentration camps because civilians were being removed from their homes and concentrated in prison camps, not because they were being imprisoned for a crime, but simply because of who they were. So so civilian populations being concentrated, imprisoned in prison camps. They were not prisoners of war, they were simply imprisoned in these camps because of who they are. So the same thing is happening with immigrants who are being detained at the border. Um, they are being detained because of who they are and they are being concentrated in these camps where they are not allowed to leave, um, where they have not been accused of a crime Um, They're civilians, Um, many of them are women and children. They're not prisoners of war because we're not at war. They're not prisoners because they um, are not being processed by the judicial system or have not been processed by any judicial system. They are simply being concentrated in these camps. And in that respect, very much, these are concentration camps.
1: You write in your piece, uh, in the same Daily Beast piece, quote, "...the longer the detention and the more secret or hidden the facilities, the worse the possibilities for what can happen." So, talk about what you write about in your book and what you've seen happen to detention camps apart from Guantanamo uh, and how they've come, in your view, to resemble concentration camps.
4: Well, this is my worry about the camps at the border. We have this policy, which we just heard earlier on this show today, you know, was in place and being used in some ways before it was even formally announced. We're hearing that they're going to be moving some of these detention sites onto military bases where we'll have less access, we'll know less what's going on. And this goes back to a number of different camps that we've seen in the past. One of the most—one uh, of the saddest examples was in France in the late 1930s, um, when the Spanish Republicans were losing to Franco in the Spanish Civil War. Hundreds of thousands of them came across the border into France, and France wanted to keep them away from their main cities. So, they built these pretty shoddy refugee camps. And they definitely started as refugee camps. But then, when Hitler started World War II, they began shoving enemy aliens, so Germans who had fled Germany. Um, some of them were Nazis and Nazi sympathizers, but mostly they were Jewish refugees. So these communities were shoved together in these same camps. They evolved into these enemy alien camps. And conditions were awful there. Um, people committed—you know, considered committing suicide. Children died in them. And then, once France fell to the Nazis, the Nazis then actually took the Jews' who had been held in these camps that hadn't escaped in the meantime and they were deported to Auschwitz and I don't think that Germany is going to invade and there are not death camps you know in play right now in the US but it's very problematic this detention that we're seeing new doors opened to new kinds of detention the deliberate separating of children from parents, I mean, what can you take from people who have nothing? You can take their children. And so, we're deliberate, deliberately inflicting harm on this vulnerable population. And when you look at that in connection with history and what other things tend to accompany uh, crisis situations where things go terribly wrong. We have a few other elements in play as right now as well. We have the denaturalization of citizens that's being looked at, and the, the explain Trump administration. that, Andrea. Um, Well, there's a new uh, office being formed, and they've already started doing it with some of these cases, in which they're going to revisit naturalized citizens' applications and review them for whether they were misrepresenting certain things, whether they committed small crimes a decade or more ago that that would technically allow that to be stripped. But it's just the overall approach of stripping citizenship is something that we see when we see this kind of irregular detention growing. Often it's accompanied in governments that go quite— badly, uh, that do bad things to their citizenry and to outsiders, it's accompanied by this wish to strip citizenship from people that you think don't deserve it. The most famous example, of course, is Nazi Germany stripping all German Jews of citizenship. But there are other examples. Um, and I think this targeting that we've seen again and again through the rhetoric of animals and rapists that we see at the highest levels, combined with these policy efforts, and then last week, as well, with this decision by the Supreme Court on uh, the U.S. travel ban that the administration tried and tried and tried again until it could sort of pass muster. And that that decision from Roberts last week uh, said that the forcible relocation of U.S. citizens to concentration camps solely and explicitly on the basis of race is objectively unlawful. But a lot of scholars said right away, first of all, This is just limiting it to U.S. citizens. So, does that okay concentration camps for other people? And then also, the original Korematsu case from World War II, when Japanese Americans were interned, it was done on just the same basis. The judges argued at the time it was not solely because of race. But in retrospect, of course, it was obvious that it was. And so now the court, even while sort of seeming to set aside the ability to create those kinds of camps— has provided the administration uh, a fig leaf to say, if you suggest it's on any other terms, we'll defer to your authority. So the court's deferring to the executive. The stripping of citizenship, this kind of growing new irregular detention that's being done punitively, uh, you know, we're still a democracy. We still have a lot of ways to take action. But I think that it's very problematic moving forward. This is the kind of stuff we and, see
6: where, where you end up with concentration
4: camp regimes.
6: Uh, Andrea Pitzer, you mentioned Fred Korematsu, who is the Japanese-American, challenging the detention of Japanese-Americans in World War II, over 110,000 uh, Japanese, Japanese-Americans in this country. Later, the government would apologize. Well, last month, federal Judge Dana Sabra in San Diego ruled all children under the age of five must be reunited with their parents within fourteen days. Tuesday is the deadline for that, and all children above five must be reunited with their parents within thirty days. So the government has two more weeks for that. We're talking about over two thousand children. Now, interestingly. In an interview with the North County Times in 2003—and this is out of the San Diego Tribune— Judge Dana Sabra said his experience as a Japanese-American shaped him. He said, quote, In light of that experience, I was raised with a great awareness of prejudice, no doubt, there were times when I was growing up that I felt different and hurtful things occurred because of my race. Judge Dana Sabra is a Japanese-American. His mother was Japanese. Andrea, talk about um, the detention of Japanese-Americans in this country.
4: Well, I think it's a story that people think they know, but they don't actually know. And it's it's really relevant today. You know, it, there's between 110 and 120,000 Japanese and Japanese-American people who were detained um, after Pearl Harbor. And a lot of people think that it was done out of sort of this fear reaction to this horrific attack. But in reality, there was a government analysis by one of their top intelligence people at the time that very intelligently... Um, analyzed that it would be useless to detain this group, that it was already known that about 300 people or so that were actually dangerous, they could be rounded up, that it might do much, much more harm and create a kind of backlash uh, to actually detain these citizens. This was all known. And this—and, in fact, Hoover, who does not exactly have a great civil rights record, J. Edgar Hoover at the time, and World War II, did not think that mass detention was the answer. So there were many people in the White House, in the administration, in the military, who knew that this was a useless thing. It became part of a political objective. It got swept up in just the kind of rhetoric that we're seeing today, where people got political advantage and power from damaging and doing great harm to a vulnerable minority in the country. And what's interesting is that this information, these intelligence reports, were actually concealed by the U.S. Solicitor General, when that Korematsu case went before the Supreme Court, that information was suppressed and it was not introduced. And I think that anyone who looks at this administration today and thinks that it would be more likely to turn over that kind of information in these kinds of court debates, you know, I'd be very skeptical that, that they would be even more forthcoming today. And so, whether the justices would even get the full picture of what's going on if something similar were to come back, I think, is a real question as well.
7: It is important to keep in mind, the Tribune notes, that there are a lot of different migrant detention centers. Conditions are bound to vary facility by facility. But the Trump administration's DOJ was in court this week defending the conditions in those facilities, actually arguing that, yes, detained kids are safe and sanitary even without soap or toothbrushes. At some of these facilities. Yes, this is the argument that they were making in court. The Trump administration argued, according to courthouse news service in front of a uh, Ninth Circuit panel this week, that the government is not required to give soap or toothbrushes to children who are apprehended at the U.S.-Mexico border and can have them sleep on concrete floors in frigid, overcrowded cells, despite a settlement agreement that requires Detainees be kept in, quote, safe and sanitary facilities. All three judges on the panel appeared incredulous during the hearing in San Francisco on Tuesday, in which the Trump administration challenged previous legal findings that it is violating a landmark class action settlement by mistreating undocumented immigrant children at the U.S. detention facilities. U.S. Circuit Judge Marsha Berzon asked the Justice Department's Sarah Fabian Tuesday, You're really going to stand up and tell us that being able to sleep isn't a question of safe and sanitary conditions? U.S. Circuit Judge William Fletcher also questioned the government's interpretation of the settlement agreement he said, are you seriously arguing that you do that you do not read the agreement as requiring you to do anything other than what I just described? Cold all night long, lights on all night long, sleeping on concrete. And you've got an, a, an aluminum foil blanket. Fletcher asked Fabian, I find that inconceivable that the government would say that would say that that is safe and sanitary. The uh, settlement uh, in question came out of Flores v. Meese. This was filed way back in 1985 on behalf of a class of unaccompanied uh, minors who were fleeing torture and abuse in Central America at the time. The uh, settlement was finally agreed upon in 1997. It establishes guidelines for humane detention, treatment, and release of minors who are taken into federal immigration custody. The guidelines include the right to a bond hearing and requirements that immigration authorities timely release children to parents or guardians and place those who are not released into facilities that meet certain standards. The facilities are supposed to be, quote, safe and sanitary. But on Tuesday, the Department of Justice's Fabian asked the Ninth Circuit to reverse an earlier court ruling because that court had added uh, what she described as new requirements, such as the requirement to give detainees soap and toothbrushes. They were not specifically included in the Flores settlement. And so the DOJ says we don't have to give these children soup, a soup, soap, soap. And toothbrushes, in order for them to be in quote safe and sanitary conditions. So, I guess the argument being that you know soap and toothbrushes, brushes uh, was not specifically mentioned. So, anything that wasn't specifically mentioned, they don't have to do. That's what the Trump DOJ is actually now in court arguing, in appeals court arguing. Fabian said one has to assume it was left that way, meaning without those specificities mentioned in the agreement specifically and and not enumerated by the original parties because either the parties couldn't reach an agreement on how to enumerate that or it was left to the federal agencies to determine for themselves, said Fabian. Judge Fletcher shot back, saying, or it was relatively obvious And at least obvious enough so that if you're putting people into a crowded room to sleep on a concrete floor with an aluminum foil blanket on top of them, that that does not comply with the agreement. The uh, class counsel, the uh, attorney for the class, said the first thing you do is honor the plain meaning of words like safe And sanitary. Today we have a a situation where once a month a child is dying in federal custody, he added. Certainly the Border Patrol facilities are secure, but they're not safe and they're not sanitary. On rebuttal, Fabian of the DOJ said the administration plans to file a motion for reconsideration of the earlier requirement to include things like soap and toothbrushes. If they receive a favorable ruling from the Ninth Circuit panel, eliciting a uh, a sharp reply from Judge Berzon, who said, have you considered whether you might go back and consider whether you really want to continue this appeal?
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Simple Habit, the meditation app that's solving the problem with meditation apps. And to explain, I'll use this show as an example. So, for instance, you listen to this show to get a range of perspectives on a variety of issues, right? And there's no one source that can be trusted as an expert on every topic. Still with me? So just like I curate experts on a wide range of topics, Simple Habit curates a wide range of meditation experts who specialize in a variety of styles and focuses for meditation. Like the same person who's a work stress expert may not be the one to listen to about self-care during trying times, like when you're stressed about human rights abuses, just as a random example, and vice versa. That's why Simple Habit works with hundreds of experts to deliver thousands of meditation practices so that they can perfectly fit your needs and your style. I was impressed with Simple Habit from the first few minutes I used it, and apparently I'm not the only one. The app has more than 65,000 five-star reviews on iOS and Android app stores, and was the Google Play winner of 2018 for Standout Wellbeing app. Simple Habit is free to try. You can hear hundreds of meditations for $0 for as long as you like, but signing up for their premium account unlocks thousands of meditations. And right now, I have a limited-time special offer for you. The first 50 listeners to go to simplehabit.com left to activate their premium subscription will get 30% off the regular price. That's simplehabit.com left for 30% off.
8: But why don't you explain why this case matters? Why do our listeners care that not only is this woman arguing that kids don't need toothbrushes and soap, but why do they care about the Flores Agreement specifically, this standard-setting
9: agreement? Well, the Trump administration is trying to wipe out the Flores Agreement, and maybe that sounds like it wouldn't be a bad thing, right? I mean, after all, we've got lawyers arguing that, hey, you know, maybe soap and and toothbrushes aren't part of sanitary con- conditions. But the reality is, without the Flores Agreement, then we have the administration um, indefinitely detaining kids and families, and that is terrible. And that's what
8: they want. I mean, that's that is what they want to do. That is absolutely the end game. You know, the Trump administration has proposed these updated regulations to replace the Flores Agreement— with this new program that's going to allow ICE to detain families for the duration of their immigration proceedings. And immigration advocates are
9: saying that this is going to lead to the indefinite detention of families. And I mean, rightly so. We're, we've been spending this whole episode so far talking about litigation that runs in the decades. Right. Right? We would be talking about kids actually fully growing up in facilities during this.
8: Absolutely. And it's... Ugh. Ugh. It's yeah, it's distressing. It's distressing. It's horrific, and and all of it, frankly, I think is kind of Bush's fault. (laughs) I mean, when you think about it, you know, Congress passed these laws in the 2000s after Bush created the Department of Homeland Security in response to the War on Terror panic, and you know, these laws require DHS to put kids in the care of ORR, which is the Office of Refugee Resettlement. And Jess, you remember oh, we have talked, talked, talked about, about ORR. ORR. Yeah. I mean, why don't you why don't you refresh our listeners about the joy that is ORR?
9: Our listeners might remember the Office of Refugee Resettlement from our discussions about the Garza case and that was the case that involved the undocumented minor in the care of the Trump administration and they were trying to block um her access and access for basically any minors in their care to abortion services after judges had already granted them the bypass order to get it. So the Trump administration used ORR as a way to um, roll out some really draconian and regressive repro policy on the backs of immigrant kids. Shocker there, that that buddy Scott Lloyd, who was tracking periods of the girls in custody, for example. So, So they are one of the parties to blame here. Who else do we have? Uh, We've got Lindsey Graham. Yeah. Lindsey Graham has turned
8: out to be a real prat, <laughs> if I may use a British terminology. He's a numpty. He's just <laughs> a straight-up numpty. So he's got this secure and protect act. Which would end the Flores settlement agreement. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned earlier, over the years, courts have interpreted the agreement to require that non-citizen minors be released within about 20 days, right? They say with, with you know, all due haste, with no delay. That's turned out to be about 20 days. Lindsey Graham wants to raise that limit to a 100 days. Uh So he wants to be able to confine minors for three months or more. And we're talking about minors. We're talking people like little kids as young as two years old. I mean, three months in the development of a toddler is a long time. And these kids can be traumatized in a 100 days. So, I mean, just what the fuck, really? I ask that in all sincerity. (laughs) Just what the fuck is going on?
9: I mean, the bill would also give the DHS secretary sole discretion to determine standards for detention relating to migrant children. Really, Imani, what could go wrong there with the Trump administration giving some lackey the sole determination for the standards of care? I mean, their their attorneys are already arguing they don't need toothbrushes. Can you imagine what they would do if left to their own devices?
8: Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine because Trump already fired that one lady because she refused to be as much of an asshole as he wanted her to be. Kirsten Nielsen? Yes. I mean, it's it's like they're trying to find the absolute worst people to implement the absolute most dehumanizing policies possible. And, you know, I don't understand why they're doing this. Why are they doing this, Jess? Because they're
9: assholes, Amani? I mean, that's sincerely my answer. I mean, that's as good an answer as any. I've got another one for you. What's that?
8: Capitalism. Oh, they tend to go hand in hand. They really do. Being an asshole and being a capitalist somehow tend to go hand in hand. But, you know, the government would rather detain families together for as long as it takes to remove entire families. Mm -hmm. Because the current policy of separating kids from their families is not only horrific and terrible. But it also costs the government a lot of money because there end up being separate removal proceedings or separate deportation proceedings for kids, and then separately for their parents.
9: So the Trump administration then is offering up indefinite detention of immigrant families as this alternative policy to family separation. And this obviously has its own due process concerns, but I just want to sit with the sort of bullshit choice that the administration is giving us here. Right. Enact this, like, completely horrific clearly unconstitutional family separation policy, and oh, if you don't like this, then here's the answer, we'll just go to indefinite detention.
10: We're joined now by Dr. Scott Allen, a government whistleblower who was hired in 2014 to inspect family facilities where immigrant families are incarcerated. He's still on contract with the Department of Homeland Security's Office of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties. He and Dr. Pamela McPherson were shocked at what they observed during their inspections uh, and raised concerns internally. Last year, they contacted lawmakers to speak out against family separation and family detention and continue to do so now after their Their concerns were ignored by the Trump administration. They were recently awarded the 2019 Rittenhauer Prize for Truth Telling.
6: Dr. Scott Allen joins us from Irvine, California. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Dr. Allen. Can you tell us what you have found and why you've decided to speak out? You are still on contract.
11: That is correct, Amy, and thank you for having me. What Dr. McPherson and I have been advising our government for uh, really going back to 2014 but more intensively over the course of the last year is that a policy that prioritizes confinement of children over care of them is deeply flawed. A lot of the chaos you're seeing on the border with the detention of children and their families Uh, is a predictable outcome of these flawed policies. And we made specific warnings um, against these practices, really, um, from the very first days. Um, We first inspected uh, the very first family detention facility in 2014 in Artesia, New Mexico. Uh, That experience was very important in illustrating um, that it's very difficult to keep children safe In detention. Uh, We found that in spite of mobilizing uh, significant resources and personnel, that the facility struggled to keep children safe and, in fact, uh, did not have adequate uh, pediatricians uh, or qualified health professionals to identify uh, problems that were occurring right in front of their eyes.
10: And, and, uh, doctor, of course, th- this started under President Obama, the first, uh, the first, uh, family detention centers and have been ramped up now under, under Pr- President, uh, Trump. And your, your sense, a- a- These facilities often are often in rural, isolated areas, where it's very hard, not only, as you say, to get the proper uh, uh, medical uh, professionals there, but also to have any kind of accountability uh, from the general public or even uh, 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 journalists as well. Could you talk about the problems you've had in being able to get the word out about what's going on?
11: Well, yeah, the, there have been problems all the way through with transparency of these facilities. Uh, they are run m- more like secured facilities that you might think would be appropriate for organized crime members or uh, even terrorists, something uh, where there's a great security threat. Uh, these young parents and their very young children do not represent that type of threat. And if indeed we were treating them humanely, we would be very open and transparent about how we do that. But in fact, the, uh, the accountability mechanisms of which the Office of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties that I work for is a part of, um, as, as well as other accountability mechanisms like uh, the Office of the Inspector General or Oversight by Congress. Uh, we would have to say that they have all failed to keep children safe. And the evidence is now uh, well reported in the news Uh, with uh, the unfortunate news of child deaths that we predicted early on and warned the government were a very likely outcome of these policies, um, as well as the deteriorating conditions that uh, children are held under, such as the reports we're getting out of the Clint facility.
6: So, when you raise concerns that children would die in Artesia—this was in New Mexico—they shut the facility down, right? uh, uh That's— can you describe what happened there, and then go on to describe what happened when you went to the jails in Corns, run by GEO Group, and and Dilly, run by Core Civic, the two private uh, prison companies.
11: So, as I said, the Artesia story was a very important one for us because it, it sort of illustrated in very stark terms the dangers of trying to rapidly stand up facilities that will house. Uh, young and particularly vulnerable children. Remember, these are uh, children who have often been traumatized already and the uh, harmful effects of trauma are cumulative over a lifetime, Um, so they're a very vulnerable population of children. They're also often in poor physical health. um, And the idea of congregating children together uh, when they're often not uh, vaccinated um, is a public health disaster. Um, So we saw that there were a number of problems uh, in keeping the children safe. And the probably the most poignant examples that we documented is we looked at uh, weights. I pulled the charts of every child there, and I looked at their weights across the course of their stay and was uh, really surprised to see that a significant number of children who probably entered the facility to some extent malnourished, given their perilous journeys, um, were not gaining weight in the facility, which is what you'd expect if it were a healthy and nurturing facility. But they were, in fact, losing weight, uh, which is a really disturbing marker that we did not expect. And in reviewing these cases, we found the case of one uh, infant, an 18-month-old, who had been suffering from a diarrheal illness and had become quite dehydrated. The mother kept presenting the child to the physicians. The problem was that the physicians were being rotated in on temporary duty assignments from adult facilities. They were physicians who didn't have a lot of experience in, t- in treating children. And they totally missed the fact, uh, over a course of multiple doctor visits, that the child lost a third of its body weight. being sort of the usual panic moment for clinicians to send the child to an emergency room for intravenous hydration. So when we identified this case, we were able to say to the government, it was a miracle this child did not die of a very easy to diagnose and very easily treatable and common medical condition. That, That we told them that they were playing with fire here, that the challenges of keeping Vulnerable children safe in these environments were enormous, uh, and that if they continued, and particularly if they expanded, the risk of losing a child or more than one child uh, was very high.
10: Well, Dr. Allen, I want to ask you about—you filed comments on the Trump administration's proposed rule changes under the Flores settlement, which currently limits to 20 days, the amount of time that a, a, a child can be kept in—can uh, uh, be detained to indefinite detention. Could you talk about your concerns about this indefinite detention, given the, the kinds of conditions that you've already uh, witnessed?
11: Well, yes, it's a very important point. First, let me start by saying that as physicians, we are keenly aware of decades of literature that show us that the confinement of children in and of itself is harmful to their health, leading to increased risks uh, down the road, lifelong increased risks of depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, and even physical health problems like uh, heart disease and diabetes. This is well known. That's a result of confinement itself, the toxic stress of isolation from community. Um, But this is exacerbated when the confinement is indefinite. The additional stress imposed by uncertainty of the future uh, can increase the trauma. All of that harm is known before you even get to the types of things we've just been talking about. If you can't provide the necessary supports to care for a vulnerable child population, the harms can be exacerbated. This is what really distressed us is that in addition to the known harmful effects of confinement, we knew that the government would struggle under the best of circumstances to be able to provide adequate resources to keep these children safe. And in fact, everything that's followed has confirmed that worry.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Babbel, the language learning app that will get you speaking a new language quickly and with confidence. They have 14 different languages to choose from, and their teaching methods have been proven to be effective across multiple studies. I first used Babbel more than a year ago just to work on my language skills, and I will admit that it wasn't the first program I tried, but it was the last, because I could easily tell how much more effective Babbel was at teaching language lessons that I could put to use. Right away. Others were teaching me to say things like, the boy eats meat, and all I could think was, when am I ever going to say that? Babel's lessons are lovingly created by over 100 language experts, otherwise known as real people, not by a translation machine, and in an ever more connected and fluid world. <laughs> There is no better time to learn a new language. Babbel is available as an app or online, and your progress will be synced across devices. All it takes is a few easy steps to get started. Go to babbel.com or download the app, select the language of your choice, and try it for free. That's babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com. Babbel, speak a new language with confidence. As the excellent nonprofit
7: news outlet Texas Tribune detailed in response to all of this in a a Twitter thread on Thursday, uh, they wrote, As a debate rages over calling uh, migrant detention centers concentration camps, it's worth revisiting, reporting and writing about the conditions at these facilities. Earlier this month, they note the Washington Post reported that the Trump administration was canceling English classes, recreational programs and legal aid for unaccompanied minors who are staying in federal uh, migrant shelters nationwide. That story found that the administration was saying a huge influx of unaccompanied minors at the U.S.-Mexico border had strained the budget, so it had forced them to cut services at federal migrant shelters across the country, including legal aid for children. Now, of course, Donald Trump was able to steal money from the military to uh, try to begin some uh, building some of his wall. I guess that was more important than taking care of children. The uh, Tribune goes on to note the U.S. Border Patrol acknowledged to Texas Monthly that officers have been detaining adult migrants, uh, detaining adult migrants outdoors for extended periods of time as temperatures rise to nearly 100 degrees. That report came after an observer in El Paso stumbled upon what he called, quote, a human dog pound with human beings huddled inside of, of outdoor chain-link fenced pens where they were being held on the Texas border.
4: With nothing but foil blankets. You know, those foil emergency blankets. That's
7: all. ABC News reported in May about dangerous overcrowding and unsanitary conditions at a Texas facility with 900 migrants at a facility that was meant for 125 people.
11: Say those numbers
4: again.
7: 900 migrants... At a facility for 125 people, uh, Homeland Security's Inspector General found dangerous overcrowding and unsanitary conditions at the Customs and Border Protection facility in El Paso. The AP reported that advocates found a teen with a premature baby in a border in a Border Patrol facility. A shock that they said highlights the poor treatment that immigrants receive. The teenage girl with pigtail braids was hunched. Over in a wheelchair and holding a bunched sweatshirt when an immigrant advocate met her at a crowded Border Patrol facility in Texas, she opened the sweatshirt and the advocate gasped. It was a tiny baby born premature and held in detention instead of where the advocate believes the baby should have been at a hospital neonatal unit. Hope Fry, a volunteer with an immigrant advocacy group uh, who travels the, the country visiting these facilities, said, You look at this baby and there is no question that this baby should be in a tube with a heart monitor. Time reported earlier this month that some people at the encampment in El Paso were being forced to sleep on the bare ground during dust storms. The Trump administration has also faced growing complaints from uh, migrants about severe overcrowding, meager food, other hardships. On June 9, NBC News reported that 24 immigrants have died in ICE custody during the Trump administration. At least seven children are known to have died in immigration custody just since last year. And advocates and politicians have also sounded the alarm that there could be more deaths that the public does not yet know about. Meanwhile, by the way, it is not just Texas. A report in the Miami New Times reported on the horrific conditions of facilities uh, that are holding children in Florida where they report that children cried themselves to sleep, marked birthdays that passed without anyone singing to them, and tried to follow the, adv- and, uh, tried to follow the advice their parents shared over the, over the phone, be patient and don't cause trouble. A special report from the Associated Press broke last night on the ongoing conditions of some of these, yes, concentration camps as found by uh, the attorneys who are representing the class in this uh, Flores settlement, who have the right to go in there and speak with the children. Here's what the Associated Press reports. A two-year-old boy locked in detention wants to be held all the time. A few girls ages 10 to 15 say they've been doing their best to feed and soothe the clingy toddler who was handed to them by a guard days ago. 10 and 15 year old girls. Lawyers warn that kids are taking care of kids and there is inadequate food, water and sanitation for the 250 infants, children and teens at the Border Patrol station. The bleak portrait emerged Thursday after a legal team interviewed 60 children at the facility near El Paso. That has become the latest place where attorneys say young migrants are describing neglect and mistreatment at the hands of the U.S. government. The three girls told attorneys they were trying to take care of the two-year-old boy who had wet his pants, had no diaper, was wearing a mucus-smeared shirt when the legal team encountered him. A Border Patrol agent came in our room with a two-year-old boy and asked us, who wants to take care of this little boy? Another girl said she would take care of him, but she lost interest after a few hours, and so I started taking care of him yesterday, said one of the girls in an interview with the attorneys. Law professor Warren Binford, who's helping interview the children, said she couldn't learn anything about the toddler, not even where he's from or who his family is, because he's not speaking. He's two years old. Binford described the uh, that during interviews with children in a conference room at the facility, quote, little kids are so tired they have been falling asleep on chairs and at the conference table. She said an eight year old taking care of a very small four year old with matted hair couldn't convince the little one to take a shower. An eight year old taking care of a four year old. Holly Cooper, who uh, co-directs University of California Davis's Immigration Law Clinic and represents detained youth, said, quote, In my 22 years of doing visits with children in detention, I have never heard of this level of inhumanity. Many children interviewed had arrived alone at the U.S.-Mexico border. Some had been separated from their parents or other adult caregivers, including aunts and uncles, according to the attorneys. Government uh, rules call for the children to be held by the Border Patrol for no longer than 72 hours before they are transferred to the custody of Health and Human Services, which houses migrant youth facilities in in, uh, uh, migrant youth in facilities around the country. A teenage mother with a premature baby was found last week, as I noted, in a Texas Border Patrol processing center after being held for nine days by the government. In an interview this week with the AP, Acting Customs and Border Protection Commissioner John Sanders said the Border Patrol is holding 15,000 people, but the agency considers 4,000 to be at capacity. The arrival of thousands of families and children at the border has thrust Border Patrol agents into the role of caregivers. But children at the facility in Clint, this is some 25 miles southeast of El Paso, they say they've had to pick up children, have had to pick up some of the duties in watching over the younger kids. A 14-year-old girl from Guatemala said she had been holding two little girls in her lap. She said, I need comfort, too. I am bigger than they are. But I am a child too, she said. Children told uh, lawyers that they'd uh, gone weeks without bathing or a clean change of clothes. Dr. Julie Linton, who chairs the American Academy of Pediatrics immigrate, uh, Im- Immigrant uh, Health Special Interest Group, said that the Customs and Border Patrol stations are not an appropriate place to hold children. She said those facilities are anything but child friendly. That type of environment is not only unhealthy for children, but it is also unsafe. San Francisco psychoanalyst Gilbert Kleiman told the AP, uh, Gilbert, uh, who has evaluated about 50 children and parents who are seeking asylum, said that the trauma is causing lasting damage. The care of children by children constitutes a betrayal of adult responsibility, governmental responsibility, he said. And now, today, uh, just before we go on air today, uh, breaking news from several different outlets that ICE now plans to begin rounding up thousands of immigrants over the weekend in several major cities around the country. Great. Where are they going to put them into one of our already overcrowded, unsafe, unsanitary, yes, concentration camps?
4: once again, this is a situation of the Trump administration's own making. It did not have to be this way. It still does not have to be this way. And we cannot look away.
6: Mr. Benford, where are these children coming from? Why are they separated from their parents? Where are their parents?
1: So, about half the children have parents in the United States. So, as we started to interview the children, we asked them where their parents were. We asked them if they had their parents' telephone number. And um, and most of the children have parents in the United States—most of the children that I interviewed have children in the United States. And they had their parents' number either memorized or written on a bracelet around their arms or tucked into a piece of paper in their jacket. And so, we asked them if they'd like to speak to their parents, if they had spoken to their parents. And many of these children have not spoken to their parents. And many of these children um, who had spoken to their parents had only spoken to them once. So, what we did was we we got the parents on the phone and started to find out what had happened. And many of these children are coming from Central America, particularly the Northern Triangle, which is El Salvador, Nicaragua, and Honduras. And they came to the United States with relatives. Um, this might be a parent, but it might be the entire family. We had one little girl who was separated from her mother, her father, and her younger younger sibling. We had many children who had been separated from older siblings who are, uh, who are young adults. We had children who were separated from aunts and uncles and cousins. And then what's happening is they are being reclassified as unaccompanied children, even though they came across with relatives and have parents in the United States. Over 50 percent of these children last year were placed with their parents in the United States. Another 20-something percent were placed with other family members in the United States, and an additional approximately 15 percent were placed with other adults who are authorized by the parents to take care of them. So, it's really very a very small percentage, about 12 percent of the children that uh, we meet with in these facilities who actually need to be in government custody. Every other child, can be put on an airplane to their parents or their parents are willing to come and get them. We repeatedly talked to the parents who said, tell me where I need to send the money to bring my daughter to me, to bring my son to me. You know, they are, they are able to take care of their children. They want to take care of their children. The only thing that's standing between these children and their parents is the U.S. government. And I've described for you the horrendous conditions in which the U.S. government is is keeping these children. It's, what, it's, what is it's the outrageous. Trump administration telling you? Well, you know, the the Trump administration is telling us that they are overwhelmed, that there's too much chaos, that there are too many people coming across the border. And frankly, there is chaos, but it is the chaos that has been created by this administration. We are nowhere near the highest level of apprehensions that uh, have been uh, taken by the Border Patrol over the last several decades. So, the numbers that we're seeing come in are not not the highest numbers that we've seen. And when they say that, it's simply not true. We are seeing a higher number, a higher level of children and young families coming across the border, young mothers and their babies coming across the border, or young children coming across the border, and then some older unaccompanied children. However, we have facilities to take care of them. And as I mentioned earlier, most of these children have family in the United States who can care for them so the administration currently has 12,000 beds online where they can take care of these children three-quarters of those beds are in licensed facilities so that we have some assurance that these children can be relatively well cared for in these facilities compared to what they're experiencing in Border Patrol we currently have 2,000 approximately 2,000 empty beds in those facilities and children only need to be in those facilities for uh, a few days no more than 20 days so if they The administration would simply manage the resources it has. It can move these children in and out of Border Patrol facilities in a matter of hours, in and out of the Office of Refugee Resettlement beds, you know, those facilities, in a matter of days—no more than 20 days is what's allowed by by law—and into the homes with their families, where it will cost the taxpayer no money to take care of these children. Keep in mind that these facilities that the administration has set up for these kids is costing the American taxpayer. $775 $775 a day, which is an outrageous amount of money per for kid. us. Yes, per kid, which is an outrageous amount of money when these children have family in the United States that want to take care of them and are ready to take care of them. All we have to do is let the parents and their families have these children back. Is the Trump administration, we just have 30 seconds, breaking the law? For example, the Flores Agreement. Yes. Yes, absolutely. This is this is why we went to the media, is that they are absolutely breaking the law. They're breaking the law as to the conditions of detention. They're breaking the law as to the number of hours that they can keep the children in Border Patrol facilities. They're breaking the law as far as how long these children are being kept in ORR facilities. They're breaking the law by taking the children away from their families. And they're also breaking the law by transporting them on Texas state highways without the appropriate uh, child seats and infant carriers and, you know, these these booster seats that are required by law everywhere I look this administration is breaking the law and and the border patrol employees that we talked to said they don't understand why the american people aren't outraged by the mismanagement that they're experiencing <laughs>
12: The situation at the border has been bad for a while, but Pitzer makes this point where she says, when it sort of crosses over from that sort of temporary detention, which is not good, obviously, but into a concentration camp situation is when the whole institution sort of crystallizes. And she writes, the longer they're there, the worse conditions get. That's just a universal of camps. They're overcrowded. We already know from reports that they don't have enough beds for the numbers that they have. As you see, mental health crises and contagious diseases begin to set in. They'll work to manage the worst of it. But then, the, but then there will be the ability to tag these people as diseased, even if we created those conditions. Then we, by creating the camps, try to turn that population into the false image that we use to put them in the camps to start with. Over time, the camps will turn those people into what Trump has already uh, said they are. So, yeah, because then it'll be a, a public health crisis, right? Then the CDC will be like, well, we can't release them because there's a measles outbreak and then everyone will be like well there's a measles outbreak you got to keep them in there don't let them out into the cities so then it sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where it's like see we told you we needed to keep them here because we broke them
13: the policies that are being challenged and pushed here. I mean, I, I, for, for you and our, and our viewers, I mean, let's listen to Trump for a moment here. And I'm very curious how you think what we're, we're gonna listen to and, and watch here, how this will uh, ameliorate or exasperate what's happening on the border, especially with our children, with the families, and what's gonna happen with immigrants and, and, and in terms of family unification. This is here with the, what Trump had to say on the on the uh, White House lawn here. Critical to ending the border crisis is removing all incentives for smuggling women and children. Current law and federal court rulings encourage criminal organizations to smuggle children across the border. Our plan will change the law to stop the flood of child smuggling and to humanely reunite unaccompanied children with their families back home and rapidly, as soon as possible. Our nation has a proud history of affording... Protection to those fleeting government persecutions. Unfortunately, legitimate asylum seekers are being displaced by those lodging frivolous claims. These are frivolous claims to gain admission into our country. So, Astrid, I'm very curious if you had the opportunity just at that moment uh, to to, uh, give a response to uh, Donald Trump, what would you say?
3: the so-called crisis at the border, it's a crisis that they're creating themselves. Um, this administration has done everything possible to stop asylum seekers from arriving to our country. During the family separation um, crisis back uh, last summer, the, we constantly heard um, Secretary Nielsen, former Secretary Nielsen, and CBC Commissioner, now acting deep Secretary, say, Well, these families are separated because they're breaking the law. Because they're arriving between ports, they should come to a port of entry. Um, Families are arriving to ports of entry when they families were arriving, and yet uh, the U.S. government was turning asylum seekers away. And right now, they have uh, a practice, uh, a policy called metering. Um, and at our ports of entry, which is, there's a long list, you know, in Tijuana, there's about a list of like 1,000 people waiting to be processed for asylum. Um, and they keep, you know, they keep pushing uh, people away. They say like, you know, you don't have, there's no asylum today, um, sorry, we're full, or we're not giving asylum anymore. Um, and there's a Remain in Mexico policy About making and returning some people to Mexico to wait for their, um, you know, for their uh, for their process. So this administration has done everything possible, precisely to prevent people from coming and seeking asylum, Um, even when um, unaccompanied children had the opportunity to um, have um, the um, do their their. uh, Third country in third country processing when they were in Guatemala. This administration got rid of that. So this administration lies when they say they're trying to make it fairer and they try to make it easier because they've been preventing that. I mean, it's illegal to seek asylum in the U.S. and these people are coming here and 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 they can seek asylum. But this administration is doing nothing to facilitate it. It's doing nothing um, to make it um, uh, more efficient to make it more humane. On the contrary, they're trying to deter families. That's why part of family separation happened. They wanted to send a message home and say, you're not welcome here.
4: I think this is something we're going to see a lot more of. And and this is one of the things that concerns me a lot about U.S. border detention. Just as a caveat, uh, we haven't even seen the worst of it yet because with climate change, I think we're going to see refugee, even as high as the totals are now, I think we're going to see huge waves of refugees fleeing, you know, natural disaster, extreme climate events, instability in their lands because of some of the climate stuff that's going on. But even though this is in the very early stages, I don't think it's an accident that some of the most critical detention crises we have right now are border related these borders being destabilized violence around them and the inability to deal with refugees through any method other than this idea behind the concentration camp which is to seal them off from your community to seal them off from the rest of the world i think is is really frightening because the world seems ready to do this and it can get so much worse
14: this is a thing i'm sort of obsessed with and i think why the i've been a little frustrated with the political discussion about the terminology in in the context of the American system is that one of the things I gleaned from your book and one of the reasons that I had you on the show and, and and then went and read the book is that there are real slippery slope problems and they're not theoretical slippery slope problems. They're actual like we have they have happened in history in various. We've
4: seen this. Yes, we've seen it we and not been just, down this
14: road again. Even if you just take if you take the Nazis and just put them in a separate category and just look at the other examples The non-Nazi examples of camp systems and what happens in camp systems and how they grow and the brutality and barbarity that they tend to engender and the communicable diseases and the suffering and the, the bigotry that they sort of encourage in some way. Right. Because the separation of the population itself makes them seem other and miserable. We're at the crosshairs of a bunch of historical trends. With migration flows, massive global inequality and climate that is going to make camps for undesired populations, extremely attractive options for governments that run the gamut from self-avowed liberal democracies to states like China.
4: Well, this is one of the things that I mean, many things concern me about what we're doing at the border. But one of them is if the United States probably the wealthiest country and most powerful country in the history of the world in terms of just sheer volume of resources to do things. If this is what we are going to do, just imagine what excuse that will give to so many other countries that will be looking to do much worse. So we have our own problem that we need to address and deal with that I think is is really significant and dangerous for our country. But when we also look at, you know, if the U.S. is willing to do these things, what will countries do that aren't liberal democracies that won't feel any pressure to live up to anything and that will be able to hold up the U.S. example as a model? Yeah. You know, I think it's really it's very concerning.
14: And I want to just be clear because it, it, sometimes these specifics get lost. Like when we're talking about detention in the immigration system, there's a bunch of different bureaucracies doing it under very different conditions. CBP facilities tend to be the worst and they're supposed to be designed to only hold seventy people 72 hours. What we've been seeing is people held in them for sometimes up to a month, which is created the worst conditions and some of the most appalling stuff that's gotten out. But then there's also ICE detention, which is its own thing. The Office of Refugee and Resettlement, which often contracts with private contractors who then run sometimes children's shelters, which range in how good they are. But as a system in Toto, it is essentially a regular detention of civilians, right? These are people who are not a public safety threat and they are being held not they can't leave. Right. So like those are the two things that make the system as a whole kind of uncomfortably fit into the conceptual space that you have written this book about
4: right and it it didn't happen overnight it really is something that prior administrations have to own a piece of because certainly since the 90s one could go back probably a 100 years if you wanted to document the whole thing there's bits of it in my book but this use of immigrants as a threat and we literally have a hundred years of data that show that they commit less crimes than a U.S. born population, even people without papers. I mean, this is a, it, this has been settled forever. It comes up again and again. And yet we see the sort of political use of the alien, of the foreigner, of the invader, you know, as a, a threat. And, and it happens so that. People in both parties will often want to have the to be looking like they're the hardline position that won't put up with people taking advantage of America. And so you'll hear sometimes people talk about the Flores Agreement, which limits how long kids can be held. And there's monitoring of how they're held in these kinds of immigration detention facilities. The very reasons those are in place are because courts had to intervene in prior administrations and say, you're doing this really badly. It is traumatizing the children. It is cruel. And and it's not it's not legally possible. It's not legally within bounds. And so even before this administration came in, before the Trump administration, we had entered this gray area of of this detention-focused approach when that isn't necessary. There are all kinds of programs that have been done, pilot programs, various ones that have very high rates of, you know, 99 100% rates of people showing up for things. And you have to pick the populations you let into the community. There are definitely people that... End up with ICE that are have criminal records that are violent right. people. And and so I'm not pretending that, like, let's throw open the doors and anything goes. But the vast majority of these people could be integrated into the community while they're waiting to have their asylum process to see if they would be able to stay or not. And we have programs that show that it's cheaper not to detain them. You don't traumatize refugees in that case, and that you don't destabilize the border, you know, and you're following the law. We have international treaty obligations on how we treat asylum seekers, and we're really not. We've militarized the border. We've criminalized the border crossers, even if they're just seeking asylum. You know, everything we've done is is sort of in contravention of a lot of this. And I realize that there are people in some of the you know, there, there are various detention bodies. Some of them are trying to do really good work. If you overload this system badly enough. Then it won't matter, you know, and that's the train that we're on, I'm afraid, is that, that we've sort of created this monster, and it, I think it's gonna be hard to undo because it's several years in the making, and now this, this administration is actively demonizing the people inside.
8: Peter Shea, what should people do if they want to do something about this and, and perhaps support the efforts of the attorneys that are working on behalf of the children?
15: Well, we would uh, we would invite attorneys, doctors, uh, interpreters and a- anybody who cares about this very, very drastic uh, situation. Uh, if, if they're interested in volunteering, we do organize. We have the, uh, the the right under the terms of the Flores Settlement, uh, which is a nationwide settlement that sets the national standards for the uh, for the treatment and the release of children. Uh, under that terms of the settlement, we do have the right to uh, inspect facilities. We have the right to enter facilities to uh, to interview children, and so we would uh, uh, urge anyone who who cares and and who mm-hmm. might want to uh participate in a, a detention site inspection uh, or we may want to just make a, uh, a a donation to support this work that we're engaged in uh, we would urge them to go to a website we have set up uh, it is a portal to register and the website is www.reunify.org so just www.reunify. Okay. Org, and that is one way that people can uh, can certainly help uh, uh, directly, becoming directly involved uh, uh, in fighting this absolutely horrendous uh, uh, human rights situation that these children are facing under the Trump administration.
8: So if it's a political answer and we're not quite sure what the courts are going to do, is there something that we the people can do to sort of urge the politics of concentration camps in a direction where we're not putting kids in cages? Right. Can we sort of figure out a way to
9: get the politics to work in our favor and in the favor of marginalized people? I mean, we ha- we can start first with advocacy, right? Demand Congress investigate and frankly, shut down the camps. It's good to see folks um, paying attention now and drawing consistent attention to it, but um, keep the pressure up and absolutely um, get out on the street for that too. What else?
8: Yeah. I mean, getting out on the streets is one thing. I see a lot of people sort of wondering what to do and, and where we should go and, You know, there are folks that are just starting to line up at the border, you know, head to El Paso, head to some of these places on the border where they are treating these human beings like they are animals Mm -hmm. and demonstrate that this is not acceptable. You know, this is not who we want to be. And I'm not going to say this is not who we are because it very clearly is who we are, but it's not who we want to be. And if you can't, you know, put your body on the line, you can't go to Texas. If you have money, you can donate to certain immigrant advocacy organizations. You can, for example, figure out how to provide bail funds for folks who are picked Absolutely. up in ICE raids. This
9: is a huge thing.
8: You can, if you see an ICE raid going on, if you see, if you're on a bus, for example, and ICE is doing a sweep, you can ask them questions. You can say, Why are you only checking the IDs of brown people? Pull
9: out your phone and film them.
8: Use your, if you're white, use your white privilege to their advantage. You've got to help. You've got to be a co-conspirator. You can't just be a cheerleader. You've got to be a
9: co-conspirator. Absolutely. All of those are great um, suggestions because it feels helpless and hopeless right now, but it doesn't have to be.
0: You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, unsurprisingly, is demand an end to U.S. concentration camps. Two weeks ago, Congress passed with bipartisan support a Senate version of a bill, read a McConnell version of a bill, that gives $4.6 billion to the very immigration agencies committing human rights abuses at the border and in detainment centers across the country. This version did not include any of the humanitarian safeguards that many House Democrats demanded in order to support the House version of the bill. Despite this, Speaker Pelosi still brought the toothless Senate version to the House floor where it passed with more Republican support than Democratic. The only string that remained somewhat attached to that giant pile of money was that members of Congress must be allowed to visit and inspect the migrant detention facilities, but only with two days' advance notice. However, that opened the door for a congressional delegation to visit some of these detention centers the following week, bringing back first-hand account horror stories. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said that even in the presence of members of Congress, the Customs and Border Patrol officers at El Paso Detention Center told detained migrant women asking for water to drink from the toilet. She also said migrant women reported being subjected to what they called psychological warfare by being woken up at odd hours for no reason and being called whores. Just before the congressional visit, ProPublica exposed a private Facebook group of over 9,000 current and former Customs and Border Patrol agents, which was filled with racist and violent language and photos about immigrants, Hispanic people, and even AOC herself. In response, AOC said, quote, This isn't about a few bad eggs. This is a violent culture. How on earth can CBP's culture be trusted to care for refugees humanely? End quote. On the same trip, Representative Joaquin Castro bucked the bullshit rules and snuck his cell phone in to capture video. A group of women from Cuba agreed to be filmed who had been sleeping on a concrete floor with no running water in the room for over 50 days. They hadn't showered in over 15 days, hadn't received the medication they needed, and some had been separated from their children. Right now, these accounts are one of the few tools we have to expose the truth about what is going on inside these camps and to demand action and accountability. Call your members of Congress today and demand that they visit the detention centers, bring back their first-hand accounts to share publicly, and block any further funding for this state sanctioned abuse and torture. Remember, seeking asylum is not against the law, and the Department of Homeland Security has multiple alternatives available to manage asylum seekers besides detaining them. Trump has chosen to manufacture a crisis for political gain at the cost of human life. On the heels of the Close the Camps rallies across the country last week, this Friday, July 12th, people around the world will be taking part in Lights for Liberty. This action is a global candlelight vigil founded in the belief that all human beings have the right to life, liberty, and dignity. Lights for Liberty is sponsored by over 150 international, national, regional, local, and community organizations, including Code Pink, Indivisible, and Jewish Voice for Peace. Over 600 worldwide events are scheduled thus far. You can visit lightsforliberty.org to find an event near you or register one yourself. Follow the event on Twitter at lights. The number four, Liberty, and via the same hashtag. The segment notes include all the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if treating all humans with care, dignity, and respect is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about demanding an end to U.S. concentration camps via social media, so that others in your network can spread the word, too.
9: Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on unbowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Because that's how you make a difference. In this world of change.
16: And finally, CNN interviewed some people who had no time for stories about children separated from their parents at the U.S. border, held in concentration camps or in cages without basic sanitation or health care, or dying in their search for asylum. Quit trying to make us feel teary eyed for the children, says one woman. Another man says, quote, these people that we have coming across the border illegally are breaking the rules. I have no feelings for them at all. There may be some value in hearing such voices, but airing their factually groundless, besides heinous views might suggest that what's needed now is an argument, when it's really action and resistance. Some reporters are working hard to lift a veil on the gruesome reality that some would prefer stay hidden, and outrage has a vital place. But repeated exposure to outrage with no outlet can give the impression that lots of folks are looking, but no one's doing anything. That's enervating, and more importantly, it's wrong. The volunteer group Together and Free offered a list on Medium.com of things that you can do in the short, medium, and long term to fight back against this horror show. Outlets from Color Lines to Elle magazine are offering ways to get involved. Look for journalism that doesn't stop at upsetting you, because hopelessness isn't something we can afford.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with The Real News defining concentration camps and explaining the use of the term. Democracy Now! spoke with Andrea Pitzer about the history of concentration camps. The broadcast explained the Flores settlement, followed by Boom Lawyer explaining how the Trump administration is attempting to dismantle it. Democracy Now! spoke with a DHS whistleblower condemning conditions on the border going back to Obama-era immigration jails. The Bradcast described the horrific conditions experienced by suffering children in our concentration camps. Democracy Now! explained the unnecessary structural chaos the Trump administration has imposed. Light Treason News highlighted the point that concentration camps are actually designed to turn the prisoners into the kinds of people that the propaganda has already described them to be. The Real News explained that the suffering in our concentration camps is intentional and by design. Why is this happening? Why is this happening? Took a look at the international consequences of the U.S. creating a bad example of refugee management, just as climate refugee numbers are set to rise. Sojourner Truth kicked off our activism segment, speaking with Peter Shea, advising that you check out Reunify.org, followed by Boom Lawyered, also giving advice on protest and activism. Our activism segment is in support of various actions that can be taken, as well as the Lights for Liberty vigil on July 12th. And finally, we just heard Counterspin suggesting some resources for action and reminding us that hopelessness isn't something we can afford right now. Members this week will hear some additional material on this topic, though I haven't decided what yet, so that'll be a fun surprise for everyone to hear that and all of our bonus content. Sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash best of the left. No voicemails today. I just wanted to put a little bit more meat on the bones of the the article we just heard referenced from Counterspin, and we're going to link to it in the show notes. The uh, article title is Feel Helpless Amidst the Horrific Immigration News. You're not. Here's what to do. That's on medium.com, uh, posted by Together and Free organization. And so I'm, I'm just going to run through sort of the highlights of what this list has to say. First and foremost, uh, and mo- maybe most importantly, uh, structurally speaking, call any representative you can get on the phone or whose office you can get on the phone from any level, level federal, state, local, and demand that they pay attention to this issue and take action on this issue. Secondly, you can give to bond funds because the first step to getting people out of these detention centers is often a matter of them paying a bail that they can bail out and then proceed with their uh, immigration proceedings from outside of the system. Uh, You can also donate to advocacy and assistance efforts, as well as uh, legal funds. They have just a huge selection of uh, suggested organizations that you can give to, including just giving directly. If you know someone who has a pending immigration case, you should consider just asking if you can help support their legal efforts directly. In the uh, sort of immediate short term, educate yourself, which you're obviously doing in part by listening to this show, but there's a lot more to be learned. There are links in the article. And then spreading awareness. Once you actually have the real facts and understand how the system works, you can help spread that correct information because the spread of wrong information can be Uh, hugely problematic and and counterproductive even when well-meaning people are the ones spreading it. Uh, There are opportunities to volunteer directly or leverage your professional expertise. If you have Spanish language skills, there are definitely a lot of options for how you could put those to use. They also recommend the Lights for Liberty vigil on July 12th. You can uh, coordinate small group protests yourself. You don't have to wait for large-scale protests. In the short to medium term, if you want to get more involved, there are uh, workshops and legal clinics you could help sponsor, you could uh, consider acting as a sponsor for asylum seekers more directly, or you could create uh, or, or take part in a giving circle. Rather than just donating on your own, you could help encourage others to donate along with you. And then they also have suggestions for long term, if you want to make this a way of life, how you can go through the world helping people uh, for it for those who, um, you know, really, really want to get involved. Or I, I, I like the way the article is laid out because it, it's it's sort of um, it, it is not just an entry point for anyone, no matter what your current level, but you could. Uh, start at one step and maybe step your way up as you go, as you get more involved. So um, definitely lots of great information there for you to check out. Again, that's linked in the show notes. The title on Medium is Feel Helpless Amidst the Horrific Immigration News. You're not. Here's what to do. And with that, we will wrap up. As always, if you have comments you'd like to leave, uh, keep calling in at 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. So that's where we'll wrap up. But as always, if you have comments to make... Keep them coming in at 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode,